was a very big thing with John. He was, you know, he was going through a, a, a hard, heavy time of finding himself, uh, dispelling, you know, a lot of his childhood and putting into a real space. You know, and searching like the rest of us for the meaning of of life, as Monty Python said. Um, so, you know, it didn't. For me, I play drums, okay. And if he wants to search, I'll play with you. This week's Wednesday with Fab. I'm Ed Chin. I'm John Stone. And today we have a very special guest with us, the man who brought John Stone to the show, Mr. Darren Murphy. Hello, fellas. How you doing? I'll get you, Darren. So <laughs> <laughs> good. This has been very fun. That's cool. Well, you know, John, I can't think of anyone more qualified than yourself. We've been beetling for years, haven't we? Yes, we have. Many years. 30 years, at least. Wow, that's hard to believe, Crazy. But okay, if you tell me so. <laughs> You're not that old, are you? <laughs> no, I'm 30. That's right. We've that's, been doing this that's exactly right. our whole damn lives. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, of course, you folks know Darren. Darren's been with us more times than we care to count. The summer of Darren Murphy a couple of years back. We saw the what? <laughs> you were with Lonnie and I for what six weeks straight, and we we referred to that as the summer of Darren Murphy. Oh, the summer of Darren Murphy. Yes, it was. Uh. It was a, a golden summer, as it were. Well, it was before COVID, so you know anything back from that era has to be considered uh, good. That's right. But we actually did one uh, about a year ago during COVID, didn't we? Yeah, we did. We did with uh, with Joey. Was uh, the last time we had you with us? That's right. That was a pretty fun show, Joey Curatolo, the one, the only. Yeah, ho- hopefully we'll we'll be getting that back uh, on uh, the feed before too long. We'll we'll go into that. The, the listeners know we got visited by uh, Universal Music. Uh, really? What yeah. on earth for? They have certain viewpoints of what you can play. Ah, as in terms of recordings or what you could actually perform live. Well, I think it's recordings. Theoretically, they could even go after you for what you're performing live if you don't have a sync license on it. But I really don't think they'd do that. Oh, well, that's uh, that's very interesting. Well, you know, the the whole copyright and, and rights situation is set up so that if an artist doesn't defend it, 
he loses it. And so a lot of times that's what all this is about. It's not that like they're going after people because they want to go after people, but if they don't defend it, then they lose rights. Well, anyway, that again is not what we're here to talk about, although we do seem to uh, drift off uh, at the beginning of shows, don't we, John? (laughs) Yeah, I guess we do. So, Ed, what are we here to talk about? Well, okay, so we're now going to be moving into uh, week four of our look at the uh, Plastic Ono Band uh, Ultimate Collection box. And seeing as how we now have uh, two uh, experienced singer-songwriters, that's a nice way to put it, right? Sure. I'll take that. Very nice. Yes. Who, Who are knowledgeable of the process of actually going into the studio and putting down things on tape. But let's talk about the demos disc and the uh, evolution mixes. Right. I I had a, I had an amazing time sitting down with those. You know, that was probably, I think the evolution documentary was personally my favorite part of that whole box set. There was so many little elements of, of the tunes that I hadn't even imagined let alone heard before. Right. Yeah, th- that was stunning to me because there are some songs that were taken in a direction or had parts that I was like, wow, that's way off what, what I would expect. Right. It was a big revelation yeah. to me. I had no idea previously that George Harrison was in the studio during Instant Karma, that he was on the track. I had no idea. Wow, that's a lot of guitar on the it's the echo uh-huh. and stuff. I tell you what may be nice. Um, just a suggestion. You know the first break. Yeah. Not to have it on the first time. Okay. After we've been through one whole round, it goes back to C, and then it's back to the A, and it goes round a whole yeah, other and then one. Yeah. Does the chorus. Second one before it gets to the G, and then after the and G. Then it goes every other time. Yeah. And then the G goes. Back into the A. Um, and to hear him, uh, to hear some of the earlier takes with him playing a more prominent role on electric guitar, uh, made me a little bit melancholy because I thought, "Wow, what a what an amazing single! What amazing Beatles single! Instant Karma would have been if only." Which is exactly what John said. Well, you know, it's you hear some of these things. I felt that way about uh, Cold Turkey. When I hear it, I just think, you know, I love that record. But you could just kind of imagine 
the Beatles playing it, knowing it would have gone a little further somehow. That, that magic would have come together. Yeah, sure. <clears throat> and then during the Remember sessions, John sounds so happy when, when George comes into the studio. It's like, George, you're here! George! Grace! Ah. Is it tuned to open eight? Yeah. No, no, it's probably F sharp. Yeah, oh, well, you know, I Because it was so strung, so slack. When <laughs> <laughs> and it's like... Okay, but aren't you mad at him or something? It raises the question: <laughs> Was George John's favorite Beatle? <laughs> well, after himself, <laughs> and that also then went back and forth. It's like he loves himself, he hates himself. He never, he never could actually decide. <laughs> That's right. He's out in, can't decide. <laughs> I just haven't made up my mind. Very. Uh, who do I like this year? <laughs> who's, who's great and who sucks right you know who, you know who sucks <laughs> blood sweat and tears sucks this year <laughs> well <laughs> be the lad as, as they would call him the next year he, <laughs> right. he wasn't their favorite person at the time uh, well that was a shame you know because they always gave him the first crack at everything I don't know I don't know where that went wrong you know, I'm looking at the word evolution, and and that's really what what ends up happening is it's just people just get tired of stuff of people, and you start looking at their faults, and you know the strength of McCartney ended up becoming something that they didn't really care for. You know, this is true, and uh, along the same lines, I just finished watching an eight-part series on Apple TV Plus called 1971, the year that music changed everything. Have you heard about this series? I could see this new revolution coming. It was an anticipation of the idea that everything would go wrong, but that music would prevail. 1971, I don't think the music was a reflection of the times as much as the music also caused the times. It was an incredibly tumultuous year, politically, socially, musically. I think the music reflects the state of the society's in. All these bands were making music referring to protests and the Vietnam War. That was our language. I've heard of it, but I haven't seen it. It just opened up this weekend, and it's pretty electrifying, the depth that they go into in the analysis of the music and... I guess the the ignited political scene in which it was all recorded and written and released was an awful lot to take. You know, it's a, it's a pretty heavy series. On the other hand, it's also very incomplete. There were landmark recordings that came out in 1971 that the series completely ignores. Paul McCartney among them. They would have you believe that Paul took 1971 off. Uh, <laughs> But there's plenty of John Lennon footage, plenty of the recording of Imagine and the recording of Exile on Main Street by the Rolling Stones and Hunky Dory by David Bowie, Riot Going On by Sly and the Family Stone. But uh, it would have been interesting for them to touch on the uh, the sticky relationship between Paul and John that had manifested, had really come to a head that year and had played itself out on vinyl. There was no other story like that in rock music at the time. Uh, why did I write it? 
because I'm human and I get irritated and I get angry. And I got so furious when I heard Ram the first time that I just wrote the song, you know. A little what? Vindictive. Vindictive. Well, it's, a, it's an answer, you know. Paul, Paul uh, personally doesn't feel as though I, I insulted him or anything because I had dinner with him last week. They He's were quite friends, happy. you know, and they were swearing at each other. If I can't, uh, if I can't uh, have a fight with my best friend, I don't know who I can have a fight and of course now every other rap group uh, is going to be throwing diss songs at each other throwing shade <laughs> on each other yeah but the creation of bride epstein lived so long that it took shocking moves to break that up yeah you're right it was like this enormous locomotive that was so heavy and bulky and going so fast, it takes a long time to slow something like that down to a complete halt. Right. I mean, it, it didn't just kind of go boom, although it did at times, but being personal relationships, you know, we didn't know things had changed until we read the next article two months later. They're living their lives. And, and so I think there's more communication perhaps more anger, but they didn't just explode. They continued to work with each other. Except for Paul. Except for Paul. <laughs> he was busy off doing his own thing. Mm-hmm. And George was quoted as, say, as saying at that time, Paul has isolated himself from the rest of us, and it's really his own doing. Um, and it was a conscious decision Paul made, and it was I, I never knew the man, but I would imagine that he was pretty heartbroken by the the demise of of the group and also for all the of the business stuff that was happening and the stuff that was happening with the you know let it be versus McCartney you know the whole thing was just a a bitter bitter pill for him to swallow so he probably couldn't bring himself to be in the same room with any of those folks for a long time yeah so all right uh let's get into the box we want we're going to do the same thing we've done on the previous discs we're gonna go we're gonna go chronologically uh so we're gonna start uh with give peace a chance the demos in the evolution mix that is uh, an easy thing to look into because there isn't that much of a of a history that's right there's a demo right. and then there's just a few takes in the hotel in montreal correct and then there's the overdubs, which were done afterwards. With the, yeah. the Radhakrishna Temple. Uh, among others, the, uh, yeah. And the clapping and all that, that you know, the, the, the flipping of the beat, so to speak. The rubber trash can. Right. Is that what that was? That, that is exactly what that was. <laughs> That's cool. And there was some sort of a tape slap that they put on there as well, right? Exactly. I mean, they, they, there was the, a recording engineer, a Canadian recording engineer, who was known for actually recording Canadian opera uh, of all things that was the one who was actually there with the, with the deck with that big, huge deck that was sitting by the bed. (laughs) Then he took those tapes away and added more voices and shaped it into the final record. Mm -hmm. That's gotta be hard to do. Just setting that gear up in a hotel room, just a handful of mics and probably no outboard gear either. You've got those, Neumann U67s and you're micing up a vocal and a couple of guitars and then maybe one mic going out into the room to get all the claps and and ensemble and there it is. 
the the thing that I like is uh, is John trying to explain four in the bar versus the offbeat, and even though there's some musicians in there, they don't get it. That's right. They they don't know what a bar is. <laughs> they don't know what a quarter note is. <laughs> yeah, you waste a lot of time <laughs> trying to give uh, explain music one hundred and one to uh, uh, Timothy Leary and and a crowd full of fans and journalists. Can we talk for a second about? The demo, the original home demo of Give Peace a Chance. I, I, I don't know that much about the history of it. Uh, it was recorded in the Bahamas. Yeah, it was, it was in, a, in a hotel. And that's when John decided he was going to write this peace anthem. Not that he called it an anthem. And he had this pretty simple sing-along chorus. And he started doing wordplay uh, in the verses. The demo itself is very loose but you can hear where he's going he knew that there would be a bunch of filler words but he also knew none of that really matters when you listen to all the other demos virtually all of them already have all of their lyrics i mean he sits down and does these demos with the lyrics ready to go whereas good piece of chance there's a lot of it that he's just mucking about to put a timeline to it when was he in the Bahamas? Like how long after the first bed in, in, um, uh, where was it? A Amsterdam. Week before Montreal, basically. Yeah. Okay. Before. Because he, he was going to do the whole thing from the Bahamas, but then they didn't like the hotel and it was too hot. And, you know, it's like, well, this isn't going to work. And, and the, the, we're not getting the U S press here anyway. So it's like, we're going to go to Canada. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. So he already had the song written. When he got to Montreal. Yeah, at least the, the bones of the song. Right, and then, then of course, uh, he ended up writing the lyrics on poster board and put them around the hotel room. Uh, so they got finalized in, in a form. As a 16-year-old Beatlemaniac, Gail had talked her way into the hotel suite and was invited by John to stick around. Do you mind hanging around with us for a few hours? And I thought... Okay. <laughs> and we stayed, and I did the interview. And stayed and stayed. Yeah. Stayed for the whole event, all eight days of it. And then when John had an inspiration and scribbled up the lyrics of a song, he asked Gail to print them up bigger so everybody could sing them. And by the way, she could keep the original. He used to always say, these things are going to be worth something one day, mm. so take them. Mm. And so I went, okay. <laughs> so we come to this very important session. And this was that day. The old tattered piece of cardboard with John Lennon's lyrics had been projected to draw somewhere around half a million dollars. In the end, it sold for... $350,000. Thank you very much. Sold. About $700,000. Gail no longer has the lyrics, just the memory and the money. Who knows, maybe this is why he gave them to me. Uh, to sell. <laughs> yeah, I guess yeah, the, the, the people, the actual people in the room would determine what those lyrics were because the, the yeah, last verse right. is all the names of the people that were in the room. Exactly. But in that initial demo, you could hear several of the ideas that he kept yeah it's interesting because you, you this the the speed the the tempo that he's rattling this stuff off at in the home demo is so much faster than 
you know, what you'd hear on the recording, which is like one of the, to me, it's one of the first rap records ever, but it sounds like he's like Muhammad Ali. Everybody's talking about bagism, shagism, dragism, bagism. <laughs> this isn't, that isn't, and he's ugly, and I'm pretty. <laughs> Joe Frazier. That would be a fun question to pose to John. You know, Darren, where inspiration comes from can be the weirdest thing. And so perhaps your your theory is correct. That is kind of a the imitation of, of Ali. Well, they did meet in 1964, famously. They did. And there, uh, it reminds me of uh, the Will Smith Ali movie where, where he has this breakdown with his wife and he says, you know, this reminds me of something John Lennon told me. And it's like, uh, no, Muhammad Ali did not ever do that. <laughs> <laughs> but that's, that's right. <laughs> that's a different story. So, uh, yeah. Well, it, it all depends, you see. If you go to his gym, you have to say he wins. And if you go to Liston's gym, you say Liston will win. Yeah. The big lad gym. Jim will win. I think Liston will win, but Cassius yeah, all, Clay is yeah, a good Liston. singer. He's a good singer. He's but he told lad. us, yeah, he's, he's chubby Checker's cousin. He made up a poem as well. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so we move on from Gibby's a Chance. Uh, next up is uh, Cold Turkey. Yes. The initial demo is, again, he's got the words for the most part, and his performance of it is Yoko-ish to get that jerky thing, which was to be a, a withdrawal. And initially it goes through the whole tune. That's how he sings it. It will eventually get toned down. But uh, I was astonished that he was able to do that with his own voice. I thought he was running it through some sort of effect or pounding his, uh, pounding his chest while he was singing, mm. but no, he was actually doing that with his own larynx. Uh, amazing. Yes. Kind of amazing. Klaus Vorman had remarked about when he first heard John just sit there and play the song to him with his guitar. And, and he said, it was just one of the most powerful things he had ever seen John do. I think he was, uh, it was when they were on the plane, on their way over to Toronto and John played the song for him for the first time. Uh, it was probably the first time anyone had heard it because they were about to work it up and do it live. On Cold Turkey was a fantastic song. I thought, my God, you really get the shivers. Temperatures rising, you know. And he was, whoa, really I felt like Cold Turkey, this is it, you know. And I thought, we, we can't rehearse this here. And you have to really think about it, think up some licks and, and see how, how you can get this atmosphere across. So we didn't have the rehearsal. And that's what the version is like uh, we did in Toronto. It's just uh, nothing, you know. I mean, he's singing the song, but it has nothing to do with the really the way the record was later, which I love that record. He doesn't sing it in that fashion all the way through in Toronto. You know, maybe he, he didn't have enough confidence in himself to do it that way. He was trying to hold back vomit. <laughs> 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 he said, I almost threw up during cold turkey. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Another part, since we're talking about not only the demos, but the evolution of it, you know, what he takes that song through surprises me. Because there are things, you know, congas. <laughs> really? How weird. Um some odd double tracking that he tr tried out. It uh, was real interesting how he took that along. Yeah, it's real evident that this was a record in progress. It wasn't like he had the f 
idea of what he wanted the finished product to be in his head. Right. At, at all. You know, his original thought was as far from the record as Strawberry Fields was. You know, his original thought and what it became. Mm-hmm. It just became this evolution of how you put the music together. Evolution. It seems like they should have at least taken a snippet of the live piece in Toronto version, which in some ways is the first demo because the guitar pattern that John was playing was significantly different than what showed up on the finished track. So it, it would have been nice for the uneducated listener to hear just a little snippet of that in the timeline to further illustrate how that song evolved. Yeah. Well, there's another part in the evolution mix where the guitar line goes, the, the descending guitar line, he sings it vocally. That's right. Um, That was a surprise for me. Yeah. It was like, wow. And then Ed and I were talking uh, earlier about the guitars. Yes. You talked about Eric Clapton and how John was quoted as Eric never really got it right. To the cheap trick guys. Yeah. He he said, he said he was much happier with the, the guitars, cheap trick, provided to, and that he wishes Eric had been able to play like that on cold turkey. <laughs> John said, Rick, just play what you what you're doing. That sounds terrific. And he went in the booth and this is a quote from Money. Money said that John looked at him and said, God, I wish I had Rick on uh, cold turkey. He said clapped and choked up. That's pretty high praise from the man. But you know, that riff clearly was developed between the mid September Toronto gig and the end of September recording of it. That's right. So that happened in the same month, didn't it? Two, two and a half weeks apart. Wow. Pretty fast. And of course, there's also the the story of the fact that Lennon had offered the song to the Beatles and wanted that to be a, a single. And everybody was like, no. <laughs> and so... What a regretful moment in history. What if they had all but, said, yeah, Let's yeah, record that. Do... This is edgy. This is the next step. What what, what yeah. kind of attitude would he have had toward the band going forward? Right. Exactly. That that would be the perhaps a a change moment because you know a lot of the singles had been going Paul's way. Mm-hmm. So heavy, so heavy. 
I think going with cold turkey would have just said something to him, perhaps. Although he, he had just had, what, Come Together, which was a double-A side, and uh, Ballard or John and Yoko, so... Yeah, I think that he recognized that something was really the song that was being pitched. Well, John, the, the first track on the LP is the Come Together song, which is yeah. your vocal, and uh, is it, in fact, your, you wrote the song as well? Yes, yes. Uh, I've heard whispers that it's the it will be the next American single. No, if uh, if anything, it might be the B side, and they they had it. You know how they always get our records before they're out over there somehow. We've got a spy in England who sends them the oh, tapes. Right. <laughs> and uh, they were playing something so so much they had a, an advance thing of it. They're red hot for it over there, so we'll probably release it over there as a single. I don't know what will happen here. I know it's a, a double A side and people regard it as that, but what, you know, the publicity and all the accolades was going to, you know, the greatest love song ever written kind of thing. Oh, look what George did. Mm-hmm. Uh, and now would that have been the sort of Engelbert Humperdinck that John Lennon liked to refer to with anything that wasn't his style of rock and roll? He just considered schmaltz. Well, I don't think he ever bad mouthed that song. He said that, that George was coming of age, although that in in itself is a backhanded compliment, you know, by the time of Abbey Road. So he, he certainly was saying good things about Here Comes the Sun, and, and, and something was... I think we probably put something out as a single out there. I think that's about the best track on the album, actually, George's track. Okay, I'll take this. He was also taking off something. His track was overdubbed. And I don't think he had anything to do with Here Comes the Sun. Uh, that's right. So it, it, those are complicated relationships. Yeah, and, and, and John also you know, helped George get through the lyrics of something. I mean, that's, that's in the Let It Be movie. You know, attracts, right. attracts me like a pomegranate is, as they say. <laughs> Speaking of Let It Be, somebody during the uh, Double Fantasy sessions, I think it might have been Earl Slick, I'm not sure, but they had asked John point blank, if you could point to one thing that puts you off the Beatles, the end of the Beatles, what would it be? And almost without hesitation, he said Maxwell Silverhammer. <laughs> <laughs> Paul just did a hundred takes of that and I hated him for it. But he's not on it. Yeah, he's not on it, and he wasn't in the studio for 90% of those takes. Yeah, uh, right. You know, I know this is going to be a, a whole other talk, but the, the coming Get Back movie, you know, they're talking like it's going to be, you know, more positive and really show that it was not what everybody says it was. And I like that. I think that's there. there's footage there for that. But you also have all four of them in interviews just going, that was the end. Yeah. And, and George Martin you know, and Michael Lindsay Hogg. Right. We could have a, a more positive movie because I think their default was being positive. You know, they were funny, happy people for the most part. Uh, and, someone has said that there's enough footage there that you could cut seven different films out of there you know you could have the movie where it's paul desperately trying to pull everyone together to try and save the band or you could have the john and yoko love story movie it's like yeah right and, and well, there's that, enough footage for all of that 60 hours of footage will give you a, a whole lot mm -hmm. and, and i'm not saying he's 
attempting to do just a positive spin. But um, you know, I'm reminded of the fact that the original cut of what was the Get Back movie was about three and a half hours long. And it was that they saw it um, and it was decided that wasn't going to fly, had to cut it back. And so whatever narrative that Michael Lindsay Hogg might have had in an original version got sliced to the max. And I presume he's the one who did the slicing. But what he ended up with was a really crappy movie <laughs> of the best band in the world. You know, the songs are cut and slashed and, you know, and, and I'm sure he was working towards that final concert on the roof and all the songs would come together. But his musical editing is amateurish. Yeah, I won't disagree with you there. But to bring us back around to uh, <laughs> to this thing getting the music ready for that film included having to go into the studio and record I, Me, Mine since it was featured in the film. And so that was just George, Paul, and Ringo in Abbey Road number two studio. And I think it was like the 3rd of January of 1970. And just maybe like a couple of weeks afterward, George and John are back in the studio again to record Instant Karma. Yeah, John had written Instant Karma uh, in Denmark during that exact period of time while the Beatles were finishing up I Me Mine. Wow. Tony Cox's wife was on a karma kick and that's why that word was rolling around John's head. Okay. Uh, You just answered my question. That's great. Great song. I've had people tell me that they don't like the drumming on it. I think that was, I think that drumming is brilliant. Good record. The piano sound is, is different from the demo through to the final recording. That, to me, was the most revealing part of the box set. The evolution of that tune from the very first take just to, I think it was take 10. Amazing how that song progressed. And the stuff that showed up and the stuff that was left out. Like that, to me, was... And maybe it was just the presence of George, just another Beatle in the room. That one harks back to the days of the Beatles recordings, where so much evolution happened in those songs at such short a time. Right. That whole song came together in a day, did it not? Pretty much, it did. Yeah. And it was, John was working now with Phil Spector as a an audition to do the, the Let It Be album. And you had George. It was just a great session. He was working with new players. Although Phil, no. Phil Spector was a, an interesting character. Even at that point in time, he was an interesting character. Oh, yeah. Yeah, crazy. Following on from Instant Karma, of course, he was there for at least half to three quarters of all things must pass. And then while he's credited, he didn't do a whole lot on Plastic Ono Band. Phil was pleasant all the time. He was in particularly nice with Yoko. They understood each other well. And Yoko can be very, you know, brusque, and he, but she, he was fantastic. And I think it's fantastic that he does instant karma in his style with that wavering music. And then he goes and does really, still, when you hear the tracks and you really listen to the separate tracks, you have a genius of the way the sound comes out of a bass drum. That's a certain genius this man has. 
And it's a different type of thing if uh, Jeff Emmerich is doing it or George Martin or he's doing it. He has a magic to it, in particular when the things are put together. He's a master. He's just brilliant. And he was pleasant all the way. He never, never a hard word. Lots of jokes, very, very funny, but no guns, no uh, outrageous acts. He was very nice. Yeah, Ringo says he doesn't remember him being there much at all. <laughs> being there. <laughs> yeah. So how much did, uh, I know that Phil Spector and the Beatles were on the flight to America, the first flight to America in 1964. How many times did they cross paths between February 1964 and January 1970? Uh, probably at least more than a handful. I mean, both Paul and George have stories of uh, hanging out with the Ronettes. And you hang out with the Ronettes, you're going to hang out with Phil. Right, in New York? Well, in, in New York and in London. Okay, yeah, I, or, guess, the, right. um, I guess he was a pretty busy guy. But, but your question is more like, okay, so we know about the, the 64 thing, both in London and in the United States. But was there anything in 65, 66... Bill Spector pretty much stopped after 66 Yeah, for a while. I guess what I'm getting at is, is, is what was it that led them and John specifically to want to work with Phil Spector on this record? Alan Klein. Alan Klein is the one who put the bug in John Lennon's ear. Okay. There's the missing piece. <laughs> Klein, you bastard. <laughs> You know, we all know about Phil Spector. May he rest in peace. Well, sort of. But uh, I don't know whether either of these records would have been, they certainly wouldn't have been the same had Phil not been around at that time. Well, that's true. Now, is that for better or for worse? I mean, you know, I guess we're going to find out with the new All Things Must Pass uh, where they, they claim they've managed to despectorize it at least to, to a significant extent. Hmm. Well, you know, what history basically says is that certainly Paul was not really happy with Spectre's work on his stuff. And eventually George came to regret that humongous sound. And we've just basically admitted that Spectre had very little to do with this record. So, yeah, Spectre had much more to do with Imagine. He was He's almost more yes. a musician here than he is a producer. That's one thing you get out of these Evolution mixes. You can hear just how much Yoko is legitimately producing the record. Right. She's kind of advising John on his, this, on his aesthetic and helping to guide him and, you know, which vocal, which style works and uh, what sounds better, what guitar playing sounds better using a pick or, you know, finger picking and things like that. To me, the, 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 the great story of this whole period of this whole album is the engineers at Abbey Road who were working on that record at the time, particularly John Leckie, who would go on to be, a, a fantastic producer in later years yeah. working with bands like the Laz and with Radiohead uh, and with, uh, I believe the Dukes XTC. of Stratosphere. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't think Phil quite understood what John was doing on that one. Uh, and it was the opposite to George's one. I mean, there was George's record. There was 
25, 30 people in the room. Um, and John's record, there was just three or four. There was just Ringo, Klaus Vorman, and John. Yeah. Uh, either John on guitar or John on piano. Um, Phil Spector, myself, and Phil McDonald and Yoko in the studio, uh, in the control room, recording. So how much did Yoko contribute? You know, she got a lot of bad PR over the years. Was she, was she creative in the recording process? She was always there, always there yeah. encouraging, you know, she was always either sitting next to him in the studio or, you know, sitting in the control room making comments. Um, I, don't, I couldn't imagine what it would be like without Yoko being there, actually. That's interesting. You know? yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So I was, that was a, a revelation to me. I did not know that he was an engineer on Plastic Ono Band. No wonder it sounds so good. Ringo's drubbing is just delicious. <laughs> it's not complicated or flashy, but it just, he certainly knows where to put it. And, and, and the sound they got on the drums on this album, really thuddy. It just feels uh, so really helps that trio. Those, those calfskin heads, you know, it's the, it's the same sound on a lot of it that was on Abbey road. Yeah, he had gotten a new drum kit at that point. He had actually had that drum kit since the middle of the White Album. Is that that early? I didn't know that. You hear that drum kit on George's Savoy Truffle and a couple of other tracks as well. And there's uh, photos from the White Album sessions where they were experimenting with a double bass kit. Uh, I'm not sure if it en ended up on a released track, but there was what they call the Hollywood series maple kit, plus one of Ringo's black oyster pearl bass drums wedged in there as well. I know there's a, a picture or two of Paul playing on it, and there may be one of Ringo playing on it as well, but whether or not it was actually on a master is still uh, a big mystery. But that drum kit definitely was such a featured item on so many subsequent recordings, including All Things Must Pass. I had no idea it went back that far. So is that the kit he's using in the movie? In Let It Be, yes. Hmm. And then you also had the different board. Uh, you know, they changed boards out at, at Abbey Road. So that would significantly alter the sound of the way the recording of the drums was. Mm -hmm. What's ironic yeah. is that even though he had a new set of shells, he had these new, you know, new kick drum and new tom toms. The snare he was using was still the same snare that he had used since "She Loves You." He may have <laughs> varied once or twice, but he always came back to that jazz festival snare, and it's the one that's that's on Plastic Ono Band as well as Abbey Road and the White Album and Beatles for Sale. That's great. All right, so let's let's move into the record itself. It starts with the mother, the demo of mother. You know, John's playing on the guitar there, and he has that effect. The tremolo. I thought about that when I when I heard this because you know Lennon was famous for playing off of the sound that he was hearing. He, he liked it, put reverbs and echoes and things on his vocal. And he, he would actually sing using those effects. And him using that guitar kind of sets how that melody works. And I was fascinated by the fact that he actually started that song on the guitar. 
Is this the guitar that has the slow vibrato on it? Yeah, exactly. It's. Right. I don't know if that's a pedal or, or how he's achieving that effect. I think it's going straight into a Fender amp. He was really into Fender yeah. amps at the time. He had his choice of a, a twin reverb or a, a deluxe. Um, so it was a, it was one of those, and the those amps were were well known for their vibrato capabilities. That tape came out of one of the by the pool sessions in Bel Air uh, while they were in the middle of Primal. Oh yeah, I would imagine it was pretty easy to get hold of a Fender amp during that period. You know, could have been any one of their line of products. Could have been a Princeton. Yeah. Uh, if he's if he was just making demos at home, then it was probably a smaller amp, I imagine. Yeah, I would think so. It's just the amp itself which gives that sound to it off of the guitar. Yeah, it comes from the amp. Right. Okay. Right. So you just plug straight into that amp, and then there's a couple of knobs that give you the choice of you know, the speed of your vibrato and also the intensity of it. So it can be something that's very mild and, and slightly wavering or something that's that's real extreme. So the, the volume comes in and people have uh, uh, used that for recording vocals over the years. You know, you'd hear Crimson and Clover, <laughs> you know, people were running everything uh, through those amps to get uh, that unique vibrato sound. So I would imagine John had experimented a little bit, just you know, twiddling with those two knobs to get the kind of, of feel he was looking for. And then once he had it, he, he used it on everything. He used it in the studio too, on, uh, on some, when they started doing those takes. I think there's a, a little bit of that in there as well. On the elements mixes, it moves the piano almost right away, although there's like one guitar, one additional guitar-led take, right? I think so, yeah. Although a lot of that is just them talking, trying to figure out how they want things to go. Well, one of the things I I learned about John's writing is that often he starts with a guitar and moves to a piano and, and works things out further and may go back to the guitar or not. But this proved it on this as well. There's several songs that are guitar first. And then you also have him telling Ringo what to play. He's not quite as bossy about it as Paul is, but he is telling Ringo, you know, don't do this, don't do that. And calls him a few names in in (laughs) chess. Well, John Lennon can do that. And he and Ringo, you know, John famously said, you know, it was was Jan Winner of Rolling Stone asked him, why Ringo on this album? And he said, because I've been playing with him for so long and he just knows my stuff. I get something going and he knows where to go just like that. Um, so, and they had been taking the piss out of each other for so many years that he didn't feel, I don't think he felt inhibited with Ringo and, and Ringo didn't take things personally. He was just like, I'm here to lay it down and you go right. through whatever it is you're going through and you process whatever you have to process. I'm going to play the drums. Right. And he follows whatever style John goes to, you know, he just follows along. Yeah, no, his, his versatility comes through. And the fact that no matter what, he keeps the beat. I mean, you know, that's, he keeps time very, very, very well. It really is amazing. It, uh, it, as, as a drummer, playing at slower tempos can be excruciatingly difficult. 
uh, you know, the slower your tempo is, the 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 wider your pocket is, and the harder it is sometimes to get that bass drum to land at the right time. Ringo never had that problem. At the slowest tempos, he could always get his kick to land in this perfect place that created magic. Uh, whether it was fast or slow, just the feel was just fantastic every single time and every single take. We're getting to be just out about out of time for this week. I guess I guess sort of ending on Mother is uh, one of our <laughs> hallmarks on this set. The the first week we ended on Mother, of course, we did that because it was Mother's Day weekend. <laughs> So, so we'll close yes. out here. Uh, we're going out with a primal scream. Is that what we're doing? <laughs> we'll close out here, and uh, we will return next week with the uh, rest of the Plastic Ono Band album and anything else that happens to come across our minds. We'll try to get through more than four songs. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, we'll get through the rest of the album. We'll, we'll, find, we'll manage to find a way. <laughs> All right. Talk to you then. Bye-bye. Subscribe to When They Was Fab on iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher, or wherever finer podcasts are found. Please join our Facebook group, and we can be reached at when they was fab and on gmail the opening theme was written produced and recorded by jay young kim feaster famine studios san francisco california artists use music as their refuge and their escape but most of them live behind a curtain and behind a mask and will never let you see it. John Lennon was willing to be naked and express pain and express grief and sorrow. Tonight, we're going to be performing um, Mother. Mother has always been one of my favorites. That whole entire Plastic Ono band is probably one of the most honest self-examination albums and history. You know, that song is is important to me. Just coming from a broken home, I lost my, my father at an early age. I lost my mother when I was a, a teenager. It's, it's a painful album to listen to. You know, he was using primal screaming techniques to express himself. You can really feel that this album was saving his life and that he's just allowing you to sort of peer at the process. Free. I tell you one thing, there's sickness going on and there's some good people doing work in hospitals, but they got no bread to do it on. Not only are they working in a miserable condition with sick people, but they're, they're scraping the barrel for funds to keep going. Mm -hmm.